Eagles Entertainment. Eagle Eye in the Sky is fueled by Gatorade, the official sports drink of the Philadelphia Eagles. Everything that move, I don't care who it is. Let's go. Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. Touchdown. You're listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's run of the week. And we've got a game versus New Orleans to preview as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast fueled by Gatorade continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and as always, I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 293. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with my friend Ben Fennell about the Eagles' week 14 standoff versus the New Orleans Saints on Sunday at Lincoln Financial Field. We will talk about the change of quarterback for the Eagles, the matchup, the various schemes that will come into play for this game. We will hit on it all right at the top of the show in Chalk Talk. After that, Ben and I will go into our scouting report segment and this week I wanted to focus in on one of the best players for this Saints team and that is running back Alvin Kamara. How can he impact this game on Sunday afternoon and how has his role changed a little bit with the change at quarterback? How has his game changed even since his days at Tennessee? We will cover that in scouting report. The show does not end there though because I also caught up with Eagles defensive tackle Malik Jackson to talk about defensive line play, some of the little things that go into playing at the position and then also just his background uh, in athletics growing up. So before before we get there, a couple things I just wanted to make sure we hit on. As a quick reminder, the best way to help us out is to go into Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, leave us a comment. If you leave a question, we will answer it right here on the show every single time I hit the mic. Also, if you enjoy my conversations with Ben every single week here on the Journey or on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, make sure you go and subscribe to that Journey the Draft podcast driven by AAA. Look, it's that time of year, the college season coming closer and closer to an end. So you may be starting to wonder who are the top prospects that are going into the NFL Draft next spring. Well, we've got you covered. Go check out the Journey of the Draft podcast wherever podcasts can be found. And this week on the podcast, we actually did a little bit of a special episode because Ben, Dane Brugler, and I, we welcomed in a special guest in Pro Football Focus's Mike Renner. And the four of us did a live mock draft for all 32 teams. It's a really fun exercise. And if you're going to learn about some of the names that people are talking about in the top half of round one, well, I thought we covered everybody. So uh, we talked about their strengths, potential team fits, The Eagles, they're drafting number six overall right now if the season were to end today. Here's a quick sample of how that draft started, the top five picks, and we'll see who the Eagles take. I drew the the fortune of picking the New York Jets. This one's cut and dry, guys. I'm going to go with Trevor Lawrence here. I don't think that this is really a difficult pick for Joe Douglas and for the New York Jets. Go with the best player in this draft. Go with Trevor Lawrence. There's no sure thing at the quarterback position, but feel pretty good about Lawrence's ability to both transition to the NFL and handle the spotlight of playing in New York City. All right, well, too, Jacksonville Jaguars could have a new regime in here by the time the spring hits. It's no secret we need a quarterback. I'm going to go with BYU Zach Wilson. I think his trajectory is trending up to be the second quarterback off the board. You got to be able to create on your own in the NFL. You don't have these great picture systems anymore. You have to be able to get yourself out of trouble and create when things aren't there. So I think Zach Wilson would be a great face of the franchise and a playmaker for the Jags. I got the Bengals. I'm going to go Oregon OT, Penny Sewell. What they did to not protect Joe Burrow was borderline criminal at the start of his career. Obviously, it backfired on them with him blowing out his knee. Have to address that. You already have a left tackle, but I think it's a problem that to have two of those is a problem I'd like to have from the Bengals. He's a rare breed of OT. And I wouldn't pass on that if I'm the Bengals. The LA Chargers, I've got fourth overall, and they would have loved Penny Sewell in this situation for the same reason to try and protect their franchise quarterback here and Justin Herbert. 
But this team needs corners. And I think when you look at the cornerback market in this draft right now, as we sit here today, I'm going to go Caleb Farley here and kind of surprise a little bit and say that Caleb Farley is the first corner off the board just because of that potential scheme fit there with Gus Bradley in L.A. I'm going to make Farley the fourth overall pick in this draft. It's a similar conversation with the Cowboys, and that's, it's really interesting. When you look at it with the Cowboys, they're going to try and trade back, but of course we're not doing trades in this scenario. So what do you do? They need corner help. I'm going to go with Patrick Sertan. Patrick Sertan, I don't know that he's absolutely one of the top five players in this draft, but for the Cowboys sitting here at number five, I think it makes the most sense. Their cornerback depth chart, a lot of uncertainty going into the offseason. Wuzier, Brown, Jordan Lewis, they're all free agents. Why not reconnect him and uh, Trevon Diggs uh, in Dallas? I think that works. I got Philly, and you guys made this one easy for me, I believe. I'm going to go... So a little bit of a tease there. We'll see uh, you know, who the Eagles pick. You have to go check that out on the Journey of the Draft podcast, wherever podcasts can be found. Uh, and you can listen to that latest episode from this past Monday. We'll have another one dropping uh, here in a couple days here, uh, wherever podcasts can be found. All right, talking about the Journey of the Draft, let's get to a guy uh, who is a, on every single episode of that show. That's my friend Ben Fennell. We'll dive into our chat now in Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. All right, excited to welcome back here to the Eagle on the Sky podcast, my friend Ben Fennell. Ben, uh, before we get into this week uh, with the New Orleans Saints, I mean, obviously we got some big news to respond to uh, with the Eagles making a change at quarterback here uh, for this game against the New Orleans Saints. The Eagles uh, making the change from Carson Wentz to Jalen Hurts. We saw it happen early in the second half against Green Bay. That carried through into this next week against the Saints. So uh, just want to kind of get your thoughts. We talked with Greg uh, about getting you know his reactions to watching Jalen Hurts on film. I talked about it. Interesting to kind of get your thoughts after we watched Jalen in his first uh, extended action playing quarterback. Well, I think he showed some good things and some bad things, a typical kind of rookie performance. I think we saw some good things. We saw some bad things, you know, that were in a vacuum that hurts controlled and some that were the product of, you know, the, the collective 2020. And I don't think it's any secret. The injury set us back and that's kind of set a, a trickle effect of, uh, you know, execution and poor on-field plays a number of reasons for this team. Uh, to not be winning games and looking pretty on Sundays. Um, But as far as the quarterback position, I expect kind of how things have gone, no matter who is at quarterback, whether it's Wentz or, you know, whether it's going to be Jalen Hurts, I think he's going to flash and show some things to be excited about. But I think collectively we're 12 games in. This team is who they are, and it's going to be tough to change, you know, snapping your fingers in the course of a week. We're trying to get a spark. We're trying to, you know, do what we can to – add some sort of energy into the offense or the locker room and changing the quarterback, which is, you know, the leader of the offense, leader of the team sometimes can do that. So I understand the decision to make a change. Um, And at this point in the season, kind of treating this like preseason four and you want to see what you have and, you know, for better or for worse, let the young kid go and get his feet wet. Yeah, and see if see if he can provide that spark that Doug Peterson had kind of referenced. I think the big thing is uh, just trying to see what he can do, if he can kind of give your team a little bit of a lift. Obviously, what the, the offense had looked like with Carson had not been working, right? And you know there's no bigger fan of Carson Wentz uh, than me in terms of uh, what I think he can be, what he has already shown, frankly, in the NFL. And we'll go back to 
you know, obviously he's not just 17, but go back to 2018, go back to 2019. Uh, you know, when he has been healthy and on the field outside of this season, he has been very, very good. So I think just letting him kind of step back, see if he can get some self-reflection, whether that means he's coming back later this year or if it's in the future, you know, you try and see if you can kind of get him right, get, get him back to the level of starter uh, that he can be. As far as Jalen Hurts, I think, you know, you kind of touched on it. You're going to see a lot of the things we expect to see from a rookie quarterback, especially a guy that has that ability to escape and make those plays. They're going to lean on that. They're going to lean into that skill set. And honestly, I think that's the right thing to do. That's the right way to go about it. And so I'll be interested to just watch from the game plan this week. Do they kind of allow him to play that? You know, I'll be interested. Will we see some, you know, pass run option things for Jalen Hurts where, hey, it's one read and then we've got that built into the offense for you to be able to take off. I'll be very interested to see ultimately what the game plan looks like uh, for Jalen Hurts in this game against a very tough New Orleans Saints defense. And that can allow us to quickly kind of transition into what we talked about this week on Eagles game plan with Greg Cosell, Mike Quick, Ike Reese, John Clark. The number one thing, matching up against this, this New Orleans Saints defense. To me, one of the more undersold units in all the NFL. It's a very aggressive group. I told Greg earlier this week, a very fun group to watch on tape. A lot of press man coverage, a pressure team. They'll play a lot of sub package, a lot of speed on the field. And that means that those guys in the front seven, the linebackers and defensive line, are used in a lot of different ways. So it's a very aggressive group defensively. And then offensively, just the growth of Taysom Hill as a passer. We know that he could be a dynamic runner. So the Eagles defense, you're going to have to deal with all the quarterback run stuff. And we talked about what they're going to have to do to stop that in that game. So uh, those are the things we touched on on Eagles game plan. To kind of get into the discussion with you, I want to start with what I just ended that with. And that's the design quarterback runs. And I think it's a cool conversation to have this week because not only are you talking about that with Taysom Hill, but you're also talking about that with Jalen Hurts. And is that something we'll see more of with the Eagles? You watch Taysom Hill, you're going to see quarterback power. You're going to see quarterback sweep. You're going to see a lot of different designed runs. And then you have the option plays as well. Those are two different groups, I think, uh, to kind of keep that in mind for the listeners is that, you know, the, the zone reads, those are different than, in my mind anyway, and you correct me if I'm wrong, those are different in my mind than uh, the RPOs, the zone reads, all of that. That Those, I think you put them into two different buckets, much less the, the scrambles that you'll get when he drops back to pass and then takes off all of that a little bit different than what you're getting. So when you see those design quarterback runs in your mind, number one, why are they effective? And I guess the second part of that, why are they so difficult to stop for a defense? Yeah. At the end of the day, whether it's the zone reads and the option based run game with a quarterback, which you really don't have to be a overly athletic quarterback to execute zone read. We've seen guys like Andy Dalton's of the world and, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to say Aaron Rodgers isn't athletic, but, you know, he's known just to be an athletic running quarterback and he can make plays out of structure. But that's kind of playing off a defender's leverage and making him wrong. You don't have to be a, you know, a fleet of foot player to make a player wrong. Uh, but at the end of the day, all these QB runs, the option stuff, it messes with the fundamentals of box counts for defenses and aligning and matching up against blockers and running threats for the offense. And you always want to try to, you know, be one plus one against the run and threats of the run uh, when playing offenses. So when you now have the threat of a quarterback running, which usually you wouldn't in a traditional offense, now it messes with the box counts. It gives one extra player for the offense to be a threat to run, which gives them an extra body to, you know, incorporate into blocking and outnumbers the defense. So philosophically, it adds an extra number to the offense that the defense has to account in the run game that traditionally they didn't have to. And 
from the QB run game to the plays out of structure, you could really take a snapshot of what Nick Saban's had to do with his team over the last 10 years. And Johnny Manziel, the QB runs, the out of structure plays, really changed his view on what he wanted from his edge players, his linebackers, his safeties to respond to these athletic quarterbacks. Because if you wanted to match up a traditional Mike or Sam backer on a quarterback, the quarterbacks were too athletic these days. And Johnny Manziel is a perfect snapshot that tore through an oversized physical Alabama defense that made Nick Saban say, you know what? We need to get more athletic. We need to get a little bit smaller. Offenses are getting faster. And it's really being reflected through the quarterback position and the quarterback's ability to run, whether in structure or out of structure. Um, it really just messes with a lot of the fundamentals of defenses from the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah, I think ultimately, too, the, when you There's have – There's a lot to it, a lot, lot to kind of yeah, dive no into. question, a lot of layers there. I think when you're looking at uh, the need for speed defensively, I mean, that's what uh, – when you look at how teams are trying to play Lamar Jackson in Baltimore, right, you're going to see a lot – you want you to have more speed on the field to counteract with that. I, I just think it's going to be really interesting – to see if you can get some of those designed quarterback runs. Because uh, the big thing is, look, when the quarterback's in the mesh point with the running back, I feel like defense is now – they're coached up on how to deal with that. And not that they're not coached up on, you know, hey, just, you know, full-on quarterback counter, full-on quarterback power, quarterback sweep. But I feel like that's a, it's a little bit of a different look. And when you're not accounting for, hey, here's a running back leaking out or ahead for as a lead blocker, as opposed to, like, dealing with the mesh point and all that, that goes with that, all the different change-ups – Look, uh, we talk about when, when you have a multiple run game, uh, you know, just in a, in a traditional run game, if you run power, inside zone, outside zone, you've got your sweet plays, you've got all those different uh, elements to your run game that can be really beneficial. I think you take that to the next level with the quarterback run game. If you do all these different things, that's what may, has made Taysom Hill so effective in, the, in those early starts. You go back to his first start against Atlanta, what was it, three weeks ago? They pulled. They emptied the playbook in terms of the quarterback runs. I mean, it was and it was it was fun to watch. They, they kind of kept Atlanta on their heels. I wonder if we'll see some of that here from the Eagles uh, in this game. Yeah, it's a really good question. I would be shocked if we didn't. Um, and the quarterback running, you know, it's a really interesting thing because it's the same way the Wildcat took over college and then into the NFL for that you know little flash of flash in the pan that it was is it just changes the the number counts for the defense in that the person receiving the snap is a threat to run you have to account for them you have to match up to them on a defense when in the past the quarterback's handing it off he's not blocking or running you don't have to account for him so the wildcat the quarterback runs has really changed uh, the way defenses have to match up with their box counts and uh, trying to always stay plus one ahead in the run and you have some teams that are overly committed to the run like the Ravens it's more advantageous to be not just plus one in the box you got to be plus two in the box and you saw last night the Cowboys played cover zero against some of these run looks now you're getting extra bodies into the box but the issue with that is then you now don't have a back line of defense yeah, well, Lamar Lamar once one step through that second level and nobody's back there yep uh, so there's a lot of different ways to kind of match up philosophically uh and it's, it's really some of the tougher defenses to match up with just because I think the, the NFL defensive structure is, uh, you know, not used to this style. Obviously, it's been in a league now for 10, 15 years. And um, so it's evolved. It's not the same way Michael Vick was running around. Um, it's, it's different today. Yep, sure. Um, but, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation. It's a constantly changing and evolving, and I don't think we're as critical of saying, oh, that's a college thing, you know, the NFL will catch up. 
you know, what happens on Fridays goes to Saturdays, goes to Sundays. It's the same players going through them. And if they're the ones comfortable running those schemes and successful, let's, let's apply it on Sundays and figure out, you know, where, where we can use it. So I think one interesting element of the conversation, especially when you talk about uh, this New Orleans team, is you know I feel like they've got maybe the best offensive line in football. I, I think you look at Teron Armstead, one of the best left tackles, Ryan Ramchek, one of the best right tackles. They've got um, you know, at left guard, Andrews Pete, very underrated player big, powerful kid. And then you've got two young guys and Cesar Ruiz, this year's first round pick, Eric McCoy, a top 50 pick a year ago out of Texas A&M. You've got those five guys. I mean, that is a really, really talented group. And so that takes me to just overall their, their team building philosophy. So much has been down. Everybody knows you built, you built through the trenches. And there are a lot of people that say that that's not an original thought, but then when you think about this team specifically, you look at Drew Brees, right? He's a, this is a guy who lives in the pocket. He is a pocket passer, especially at this stage of his career. Keep that pocket pristine. Keep him healthy. So, yeah, you want that group to be really, really strong. And then you look from the the other side of it. If you're going to lean into uh, the quarterback run element, and you look at Baltimore, right? Same kind of idea. If you're going to lean into that, you're going to count number one on the quarterback being a dynamic player, and then the scheme element of that as well. That's going to give you an advantage. So the other way that you can further you know, elevate that advantage is with dominant offensive line play. You don't necessarily need the receivers to be game breakers. You don't need the running backs to be super plus talents, right? Because you've got the quarterback that's going to add that dynamic quality. And then you've got the scheme that that element of – not of surprise, but essentially that element of surprise – that's going to allow you to say, you know what, if we've got that dominant offensive line with the scheme and then the quarterback running it, now we're cooking with gas. You know, it's an interesting offense in that I think Sean Payton's running an elite group and he's been consistently one of the best play callers in the NFL, but he's doing it different than the Andy Reeds and Matt LaFleur and Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan's in that, you know, Fran, what does it say to you that like the Saints team leads the NFL and using 6-0 linemen? I feel like this is like almost a no-nonsense offense. We don't use tons of motion. We don't use tons of bunches. We don't use tons of empty. 25th, using play action. You know, this isn't the same, you know, strokes and folks that we're seeing around the league and the other dominant offenses. He's doing it much differently. And I call this a no-nonsense. We're telling you what we're going to do, and we're going to do it and we're because we're better than you. And, like, stacking, you know, the offensive alignment, six alignment. We don't need a tight end that, you know, is he a run threat? Is he a pass threat? Is it Jared Cook? Can he stretch us vertically? No, we're going to put an extra old lineman and say, you know what? We're going to have one less skill player because we want to be tough up front, be secure up front. It's a no-nonsense group, and a lot of those guys up front are pretty no-nonsense from Andres Pete and Tron Armstead and Ruiz and Eric McCoy and Ramchek and uh, they're a deep group and they're a physical group. And uh, I really love the way Sean Payton calls that offense. And it's different than you typically see uh, around the NFL. You know, you know, what's funny about you talk about, you know, there, it's a no nonsense approach to that. I think what, you know, I've talked in the past with coaches about um, things like 20 personnel, you know, two back pony sets right now with a fullback, but with two tailbacks on the field, which the saints will do plenty with uh, you know, with Latavius Murray and Alvin Kamara, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, but when you've got those, those two kind of two back sets, when you've got six O line sets, you worry like, all right, are you, are you kind of you know, giving away uh, some of your advantage by tipping your hand? Essentially. I've talked with coaches in the past say, yeah, like that could be a little bit of a concern, but sometimes it's good to have hard tendencies. Sometimes it's good to have lots of hard trends. Hey, uh, 90% of the time when we do this, uh, we run or 90% of the time when we do this, we pass because now you save that time uh, for when you really want to catch them off guard. 
Now you catch them with a big play, right? It's, the, it's like the idea of, you know, when you come out in 13 personnel and line all your tight ends uh, in wide, you've got that speed threat on the outside because on that one time when you don't run, well, now you've got a deep threat, you know, spl- blazing down the side uh, for a big play touchdown. And I think when you look at how they use the 6-0 line, I think that kind of comes into play. When you look at how they use uh, the two backs, I think that that comes into play as well. So kind of an interesting element, uh, the, kind of taking away the element of surprise, but still kind of maintaining it in your back pocket. And Fran, you know we get excited about creative play calls and we love sharing them and pointing them out. You also know I have a weird infatuation for vanilla offense in football 101 and concept you see on Friday, you see on Saturday, you see on Sunday. Why? Because they work when executed properly. Hmm. And that's Drew Brees. And I know he hasn't been in the lineup the past couple of weeks and a little uncertain for Sunday. But this guy right now, he's a veteran quarterback, obviously. He has a PhD in checking the ball down. The defense cannot be right. There is always a vulnerability in coverages, and Drew Brees knows where it is, knows where to find it, know how, knows how to find it quickly, accurately, and gives his, uh, you know, his underneath player a chance to get upfield after the catch. It's nothing sexy. It's nothing creative. That's what I mean. You know, the 6-0 line is no nonsense. The way Drew Brees moves the ball down the field is no nonsense, too. It's nothing that exotic or creative route combinations. It's we're going to make you wrong, and I'm going to find it. And it's a very vanilla football one-on-one way to succeed and be, you know, move the ball down the field. But I also love the simplicity behind it as well. It's like, you know, it doesn't have to be so complicated. Right. Make the right read, get the ball out, throw an accurate ball, and let's keep it moving here. Uh, and I love that just the Saints do it differently than the Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers and all the other kind of sexy quarterbacks around the NFL. And to Greg's point earlier this week, the Saints, it's not just a Drew Brees thing. I mean, they, they've started to incorporate more of those simple pass game concepts that they were running with Brees. They're doing that uh, with uh, Taysom Hill, a quarterback. So regardless of who is under center for them this week, you expect to see some of that. We broke down one of those plays this week. on, And, and I'm going to steal one of my exciting stats that we're going to cover, uh, you know, a couple segments here. But, you know, Drew Brees, we know he leads the NFL in completion percentage. Also leads the NFL in adjusted completion percentage that PFF does, takes out the drops and the throwaways and the spikes. But the interesting thing, Fran, is Taysom Hill is second in both those categories. Right. Yep. And it's not like Taysom Hill has only had, you know, 11 throws and he's thrown over, he's got over 100 dropbacks. He has a high volume. And it's very interesting that, like you were saying, they're starting to do some of those Drew Brees things with Taysom Hill. He is. He's getting the ball out. He's accurate. He's okay taking the checkdowns, and it's really being reflective in some of these uh, completion numbers. Let's get over the defensive side because, because as I said at the top, this is a really fun defense to study. And one of the things that I think they do a really good job of is using their linebackers uh, with their pressure package, and not just in oh, you know, they're going to line up a double A gap, and you're you know you're going to get them blitzed off the edge or doing this or doing that. They're really creative with using those guys with games with defensive linemen. So uh, you and I have broken plays down uh, like this in the past for Eagles game plan, for Eagle Eye in the Sky uh, articles and things of that nature, where a linebacker will come up and work in tandem, basically running like a TT stunt with a defensive tackle or a TE stunt with a defensive end where, you know, he jets inside as a picker and a defensive lineman comes out and loops around, uh, you know, into that gap. I, to me, I think I look at Demario Davis, you know, Alex Anzalone is used this way. Quan Alexander's only been there a couple weeks. I haven't seen too many reps of Quan being used that way, but Demario Davis, especially using those guys uh, with the pressure package uh, with, and, and the, you know, with the look of stunts, 
Why is that so difficult in your mind? Because uh, I'd love to get kind of get an explanation for our listeners as to why I personally uh, am so excited by those kind of pressure looks. Well, I love the, the use of the personnel. They're a heavy dime defense. So that means they're trying to deploy six defensive backs. They want those safeties and corners to do a lot of the coverage assignments. Let's not have our linebackers match up against running backs and tight ends down the field. I think DeMario Davis has taken a step backwards like twice this year. Right. And that's what I talk about in college on types of linebackers. And I might say he's never taken a step backwards. It's not necessarily a negative. I'm just talking about how he's used. There's a place for that in the NFL. And DeMario Davis is a great example of a great blitzer. He's physical, good at run support, can move sideline to sideline, but rarely turns and runs or takes any step, you know, uh, away from the line of scrimmage. But so, but when you're using those linebackers in corporation with the defensive line on stunts and twists and games, it's just adding more timing and chemistry and cohesion with the running back and the offensive line, Fran. The O-line works at nauseum, passing off stunts and twists and, you know, TEs and TTs and long stunts and the guard and the tackles are working together and the center and guard, everybody next to each other. Well, all of a sudden, the running back's on the linebacker and pass pro, and the linebacker is going to be part of the stunt. So now all of a sudden, it's Miles Sanders working with Isaac Sayomalu picking up a stunt. Some offenses might not practice that. And it's really a tough thing to develop that timing, the chemistry, you know, who likes to punch hard to pass off a player, you know, who is soft kind of taking that contact, who maybe gets off of, you know, their level a little bit faster. And it's tough for tackles and guards to be interchanged and work together. The second Jason Peters goes out and it's Dillard working with Sam Malo, it's different. And then Mulata working with, you know, Herbig, it's different. And now all of a sudden it's a running back working with one of these bodies. It's just a chemistry and a, uh, you know, a timing thing that isn't yep. as perfected as some of the offensive line one, just to kind of break it down in a, in a one-on-one sense. And that last part of it to me, talking about the, the stress on the running backs is the most important part, especially for this weekend. I, I didn't feel that the Eagles running backs in particular, and this wasn't just one person. I felt like the group in general did not have a great game in terms of blitz pickup against Green Bay. Um, I thought there were a couple of free runners that the running backs uh, should have been responsible for, no matter who was at quarterback, because it happened with both Wentz and with Hertz. I think you know going into this one, there's going to be even more added pressure because of the, you know what New Orleans does uh, up front with those linebackers. So Coming off of that, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, I think it's interesting. You know, we talk about, um, you know, three down linebackers and what they look like in the NFL. Just a few weeks ago when the Eagles played San Francisco, you and I were on this segment. We were raving about Fred Warner, right, and just how maybe the best linebacker in the NFL and, you know, what he can do in coverage and all the different things that uh, he brings to the table. I think it's interesting to kind of juxtapose that with a guy like Demario Davis, who you know Greg uh, was lauding Demario Davis earlier this week uh, about you know, just how he's one of the best linebackers in the league. And as you mentioned, he does not play in reverse. He is not a coverage player. So uh, there's two different ways you can kind of be a three-down player at the linebacker position in the NFL. So I'm interested to kind of who are the other guys in the league that you feel kind of fit that role, and how do you view them? Because I feel like you and I, when we're watching guys in college. We'll say, oh, well, he's not really – what value does he bring in coverage? I don't know if he can be that guy. Well, there are lots of schemes where they may not ask you to be that guy in coverage, and they're going to ask you to get after the quarterback. And so if you can do that, well, though, you might see, be seen as a very valuable piece for that defense. Yeah, and typically these are the uh, little bit of an older school off-ball linebacker that you end up being a sub-rusher because you may be a little heavier, stronger, and lacking the athleticism or the coverage skill. 
to go turn and run or to play in space. And that's kind of DeMario Davis. That's the way Devin White's now being used in Tampa under Todd Bowles, much more of a sub rusher on third down. Kyle Van Noy, you know, Jerome Baker down in Miami. And it seems like a lot of the same kind of defensive tree teams, the anybody from the New England Belichick tree. So that was Detroit, Houston, Romeo Cornell, Miami, Brian Flores. Seems like they all have personnel that do that. So New England, Dante Hightower, Jamie Collins, you know, those types of bodies, Detroit, Van Noy, Jerome Baker. Um, Jerome Baker's down in Miami with Van Noy right now. But Detroit, uh, they also had Jamie Collins for a little bit, Jelani Tavai, Reggie Ragland, Gerard Davis, Houston, Bernard McKinney, Anthony Barr did that in Minnesota. Uh, there's a bunch of guys all over the league, Rashawn Evans in Tennessee for Matt Patricia, or uh, excuse me, uh, Mike Vrabel, KJ yep. Wright. It seems like, you know, certain certain teams all have bodies that kind of represent this role. Uh, so saying that you're a sub rusher on third down as a linebacker, that's okay. There's a place for that in the NFL. It's more of just saying, what does he do well? How do we put them in positions to be successful if you're not a coverage turn and run type of linebacker like the freak that Fred Warner is? So I don't want to take this too much down to the tr- uh, conversation. We usually have these kind of chats over on the Journey of the Draft podcast. We do that under the hood segment every single week. How do you view – like if you're going to try and put a value – on those guys versus the guys that are three down players in coverage. Is there a difference in your mind or is it really just kind of come down to uh, different strokes for different folks? Yeah, I guess it depends the scheme um, yeah. that you're being asked. And at the drop of a hat, your scheme can change. And it's all about finding what these players do well. And if they don't do something well, let's try to limit their exposure and their, you know, their playtime participation in doing that role. Um, so, I think that's okay to uh, to segment them. I don't particularly like the just the general overarching position changes because of metrics on saying, you know, Hassan Reddick's a undersized defensive end, so he has to be an off-ball backer. And, you know, those types of situations are much more convoluted than just saying, hey, you're an off-ball backer on first and second down, and third down you're going to play off the edge. Right. Um, I think that's a manageable role and probably a much more uh, – manageable role than some of these coverage assignments on third downs and sorting through zone and man coverage and all these kind of third down pass concepts in the NFL. It's probably a more stressful role to have to uh, cover on third down. So before we get to our uh, scouting report on Alvin Kamara, real quickly, any numbers that you want to uh, to shed some light on here for this game? I know you brought one up, uh, obviously, with Drew Brees and Taysom Hill, but any anything else that kind of stood out to you? Yeah, the Drew Brees Taysom Hill I thought was interesting. That Taysom Hill was also uh, just as not just as accurate, but an accurate quarterback um, right after Drew Brees. But the difference between the two is the depth of target. So Drew Brees fortieth out of forty-one quarterbacks as far as how far down the field he's thrown. We know the ball is coming out; it's coming out quick, typically underneath. He's got a PhD in checkdowns. What's different is Taysom Hill. He's more middle of the pack. He's 21st out of 40 for, out of 41. So he's more than willing and capable of chucking that ball and pushing the ball vertically. So depending on who's in the game, the Eagles obviously have to be uh, conscious of Taysom Hill can push the ball down the field much more uh, than Drew Brees. On the other side of the ball, man, this Saints run defense is dominant for him. Yeah. They're yep. second in yards per game, second in yards per carry. They've only allowed 20 runs of over 10 yards. That's the best in the NFL. Only five rushing touchdowns. That's the best in the NFL. No, it's a passing league. 
But man, on first and second down, you got to soften up defenses running the ball. And the Saints do a great job on first and second down and getting teams in the third and long and, and, you know, deploying that dime package and the pressure package. So a lot of that Saints, you know, third down gets a lot of the highlights and the sacks and the picks, but it's the first and second down run defense that really sets it up. Yeah. I mean, if you've got that ability to make offenses one dimensional right off the bat, uh, now they're playing with one hand behind your back. And as you mentioned, you're getting, you're keeping them behind the sticks and that's where you can really cut loose uh, with those, not just with the pass rushers. Cause you know, as I said earlier this week, I mean, Cam, I love Cam Jordan. I really like Trey Henderson coming out of FAU. He's turned into a good player. They've got Davenport coming off the bench. So you've got three guys with length and power and explosiveness uh, coming off the edge, but then you've also got uh, guys that can win inside. You factor in the scheme element of it. Uh, you put, you know, some uh, faster guys up on the line of scrimmage with Davis and with Malcolm Jenkins. I mean, it's a, it's a fun group, but it's a really tough. Yeah. And like I always say, Fran, it's a privilege to play uh sub package. It's a yep. privilege to play dime. You have to earn the right to be smaller and faster. So they stop the run on early downs and then they get the speed out there on third down. But if you're in third and three all the time, you can't be playing dime on third down because of that threat of the run. So you have to do what you have to do on first and second down in order to have the right and the uh, you know the uh, the ability to play those sub packages. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, all right, well, let's get into talking about sub packages. Let's talk about a guy that uh, on the offensive side has that ability to be a killer in some sub packages offensively. That's Alvin Kamara. He's our subject in scouting report. Dim those lights. We're headed to the film room for the scouting report. All right, Ben, well, let's kind of empty the notebook here uh, on Alvin Kamara. This is a guy that you and I both studied at length when he was coming out of Tennessee in 2017. He was an Alabama transfer, former five-star recruit. Interested to kind of get your thoughts on him coming out of college, and then we'll talk about what he's meant to this New Orleans Saints team, what he could be for this matchup here on Sunday. Yeah, take it one step out. Looking back at that 2017 running back draft class. Good class. I mean, no question. Yeah, obviously Fournette, McCaffrey, but then Dalvin Cook and Mixon in the second round. They just got paid this year. Then Kamara goes in the third round with Kareem Hunt. Then that fifth round, tons of running backs from Jamal Williams and Marlon Mack and Tariq Cohen. And they have Aaron Jones coming, you know, down the pipe. Chris Carson's a seventh round pick. You go right to the undrafteds. Corey Clement, 2017, the plays he made in the Super Bowl for the Eagles. Austin Eckler was undrafted. Looking back, a really fun, deep running back group, which you don't get every year uh, coming into the yep. uh, out of college football into the draft. But Alvin Kamara out of Tennessee, just a shade over 5'10", 214 pounds, ran about a 4'5'6 at the combine, redshirt junior. A lot of people forget he was recruited to Alabama in the same class as Derrick Henry. But his freshman year did not go like Derrick Henry's did, had some knee injuries, ended up redshirting, and inevitably transferred to Hutchinson Community College, where he was the Offensive Player of the Year, highly coveted Juco running back, ends up going to the University of Tennessee. Interesting kind of uh, – I'm going to go with some of the issues here first. We're going to take this backwards, friend. So, Alan Kamara, not the most powerful back, a little too upright, a little patient at times. Not a sharp cutter, in my opinion. More of a gliding runner. Um, zero runs from under center in his time uh, out there at the University of Tennessee. Mm. Minimal volume workload. I think he had one game in his career with over 20 touches. Two yep. games with over 15 touches. Bunch of fumbling issues. At four on offense, three on special teams. Not tons of reps in pass pro. And then there's a lot of off-field stuff to sort through from the knee uh, both knees had some injuries, an MCL tear in one, arthroscopic surgery in another one. So the medicals are going to be very important at the combine. 
two Nick Saban suspensions at Alabama. Then when he leaves Alabama, he has a, a little driving arrest for a suspended license. So there's a lot of stuff kind of off the field as well to sort with him. But once you got him on the field and some of the, the goods, I know I talked about too patient at times, but that's what he did. He kind of sorted through the traffic behind the line of scrimmage and then darted through the line with really good acceleration, can really get to the corner on the outside. Great contact balance. He was shifty, slipping off tackles. At the end of the day, Fran, he makes people miss. Yes. And that's what you want out of running backs, not only in tight spaces, but out there in the pastures, the open field on the perimeter as well. Caught the ball very well out of the backfield. Great hands punt returning, great finishing runs, tough in the open field, run hard. And if you need any sort of case study, put on that Texas A&M game in 2016. It seemed like that was his coming out party with 312 all-purpose yards, 120 rushing, 150 receiving, another 25 returning. I think that was his real coming out party and showing what he can do and tons of broken tackles all over that field. Uh, you saw the contact balance. You saw the elusiveness. You saw the power. And at the end of the day, like I just said, he makes people miss. And that's what he's done in the NFL, uh, using a variety of traits from speed to power to contact balance, shiftiness, elusiveness. Um, I think they've been more than happy with that third-round pick uh, a couple of years ago. I think it's re- – and just a player like him is just so interesting because clearly he's one of the most dynamic players in the league. That, that's, there is no uh, you know debate about that. I think it's very interesting, though, that they always want to, and I think they essentially need to, have him paired with, you know, a Thunderback, right? I mean, right now it's Latavius Murray. Uh, he is their grinder between the tackles. And then, you, you know, earlier it was Mark Ingram when he first came into the league. I think when you look at Kamara, they would, might look at it and say, yeah, that, that's what he's at his best. And that's why, you know, even if you're, if you're a fantasy football player at home, you don't even need to say, like, oh, I need to go watch the film. If you're a fantasy football player at home, you know – that, hey, like Alvin Kamara, the most of the, his value for me and my fantasy team comes as a pass catcher. That's where a lot of his best production comes from. And you're not going to see games where he's carrying it 22 for, you know, 105 and a touchdown. Those typically aren't going to be his lines in the box score. Typically, you know, he's going to be like, hey, I'm going to uh, run it 12 times for, you know, 70 yards. And I'm going to catch it eight times, nine times, 10 times for another 80 yards and a touchdown, right? And his uh, pass production has reduced a little bit with Taysom Hill, a quarterback. I talked about that earlier this week as well with Greg. When Drew Brees comes back in the lineup, you get more of those, not just the checkdowns, but you know some of the more built-in touch throws, the screen passes, things like that. I think they're more willing to give those to Drew Brees. But kind of like the conversation that you and I had about Evan Ingram a few weeks ago when we were previewing the game against the New York Giants. And now he is a guy that you're always going to want to pair with a more prototypical wide tight end. I feel that Alvin Kamara is kind of like that to the next level because Kamara is, I mean, he is a, a truly proven dynamic playmaker season after season after season. So not as many question marks with him as compared to Evan Ingram. I don't want to make that apples to apples comparison, but he is a guy that I think when you want him you know, working at his best, you want him working with that other guy who's going to eat up kind of the junk yardage plays uh, downhill between the tackles. So, Fran, the question is, the million-dollar question, maybe even the billion-dollar question is... I don't know about billion, but we'll, we'll let it go. Where, where do you draft those players? Right. If they are more of specialized, if, they, hey, you know, if Evan Ingram is the, you know, the move tight end or Kamara's the satellite back, where does that warrant a draft spot? And I think that's the question we go through every year on saying... Oh, but he's just a third down scat back. I can't take that guy in the first round. If we're redrafting 2017, 
I got news for you. Alvin Kamara is going in the first round all day long. Yep. yep. Um, so I think reflecting back, it's a really interesting conversation to say, you know what? And all of his cons are not a high volume, probably won't be a 20 touch guy in the NFL, probably won't be a between the tackles guy in the NFL. That's okay. <laughs> let's let's save him for what he does really well. And you're looking at his four years in the NFL, Fran, three years of over 100 targets. Yep. You know, he's on, on his way Great. this year as well, nearly 3,000 yards receiving. But look at the reception percentage on each of these, over 80% each year. High volume in the pass game and a high volume of catches. This guy has great hands, can make people miss throughout running. Obviously, Drew Brees, an accurate quarterback. But for what he's done in the past game and the efficiency he's done, he's worth that pick all day long. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to look at, you know, Christian McCaffrey was taken in that same draft, used top 10 capital, used kind of similar, you know, in a similar fashion. He's going to get 100 targets every year in the past game, not a whole lot of between the tackles running, but rather perimeter kind of satellite usage. You want him paired with a – you know, a Jonathan Stewart or a Mike Davis, you kind of want that pair with McCaffrey. Where do you draft him? When do you pay him? How much do you pay him? Um, and I think that's all kind of conversations that's coming to a head right now as these guys are, uh, the rookie deals are up. But I think it's interesting because you brought that second part of it up. And I think that's where the conversation really gets, not necessarily about where they're drafted, but then what happens when that contract is up, right? And I think when you look at guaranteed money, for these running backs that we're talking about that have just gotten paid, right? So, um, you know, Alvin Kamara, he's got he got thirty four million guaranteed money from the Saints uh, this past summer. Christian McCaffrey, when he got paid this offseason, got thirty million dollars guaranteed. Those are the two highest uh, in terms of uh, guaranteed money on their contract at the running back position. Then go down to the guys that are you know built a little bit more uh, to be that you know foundation back in a more traditional sense. Go to Zeke Elliott, who's you know he's factored in the pass game as well, obviously, but twenty eight million. Derrick Henry, twenty five million. Just that's almost ten million less than what Kamara got, but a different kind of back. I think it's interesting that they said, you know what, look, with the way that you're used, we feel more comfortable with saying that you're going to last and play through the extent of this deal. Now, Christian McCaffrey got dinged up early in this season. That was a kind of a soft tissue thing. We don't know. I don't think that that's anything necessarily you're worried about long-term with him. Actually, no. That was an ankle injury. So maybe that is something you kind of worry about. Everyone worries about what the once you pay the running back, are they able to sustain that level of success? With the way that Kamar is used, if you're going to say, hey, look, we're going to pay him $34 million because guaranteed because we know what he can be for our offense, and we're going to spend a little bit. Yeah, we're going to, we're not going to go crazy with paying that power back to complement him because we know that that by, by paying that much more to that guy, that say that allows us to maximize our investment with Kamara, allows us to get the most out of him. Now, it's a, I think that's an interesting discussion. I think it again kind of parallels to the tight end discussion because hey, it's hard to find that dynamic player at tight end. If we need to pay a little bit, you know, to, to get that number two guy to really maximize the dynamic option, I think it's a similar kind of conversation. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you look at, you know, the Zeke conversation. Are we building that offense through the O-line in the run game? And now it comes to the conversation of are we paying the quarterback or not? And same thing in Minnesota. It's a run-based offense. You pay Dalvin Cook. Does it make a lot of sense to also be paying this much to the quarterback? And I think some offenses are in a little bit of an identity crisis with who they're allocating these financial resources to Mm -hmm. and who are the guys and the feature players in the offense. 
And, you know, when you look at the Leonard Fournette's and Derrick Henry's of the world and the between the tackles, no nonsense power backs, do you pay these guys and how much do you pay them? And you just mentioned 10 million less than McCaffrey's and uh, Alvin Kamara's. Is that what the pass game is worth and their upside on third down and being able to be a dual threat back? If that's the case, I'm not running them more than 10 times between the tackles in any given game. You know, I want to save their skill set and their athleticism and their upside in the pass game for when I need it on third downs and in the pass game. Um, it's a really interesting conversation. And, you know, a, a big decision is coming right now with do the Packers pay Aaron Jones? And, you know, I think people are looking in Green Bay right now and saying, can we plug anybody back there in Matt LaFleur's system? And it's a scheme-based offense, and we'll just keep getting new young talent in every draft and keep turning that position over. Or is he special? There are only so many Aaron Joneses walking around the world. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a tough conversation. And this conversation also might sting Eagles fans a little bit for the fact they trade up for Danelle Pumphrey in this draft that was loaded with tons of running backs up and down. Um so it's a, it's a fun study to look back on, certainly. Yeah, I think the running back conversation is always fun to have, especially when you talk about the guys who are considered the elites in the league because they bring definite value. When we get to Sundays, I mean, you, you, the Eagles have to have a plan to stop Alvin Kamara. Like, there's no <laughs> getting around that, right? You can't just say, oh, it doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about it. Um, so it's, a, it's always a fun discussion. But yeah, uh, it's, And you have to remember, like, the Packers, this draft, they took three running backs this draft. Yeah. And I got news for you. Not a lot of people remember who number three was. They're not all going to work out. You know, right. some, sometimes these, these are the types of positions that there's a lot of GMs or roster building that think always take a day three running back. Keep turning over the bottom of that position group because you never know when a, you know, someone's going to squeeze out like an Aaron Jones or an Austin Eckler or a Chris Carson uh, on the back end of the draft and you get really good value and, you know, you get young, exciting talent for three, four years at a really good premium. I feel like uh, there are a lot of positions off top. I feel like there are a lot of positions that people say, oh, every year you should take a quarterback. Every year you got to take offensive linemen. Every year you should take a pass rusher. Every year you should take a running back. It's like there are only so many draft picks going around. You can't like spend it on picking every position uh, everywhere. But Let's please keep adding new, exciting, young talent to every position group. All right. That's that would what we're be, trying I, to that do would here, be ideal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's the goal for everybody. Uh, ben, as always, great stuff. Uh, we will talk to you next week here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. And we will talk to you really uh, tomorrow right here on the Journey of the Draft podcast. Again, you can go find Journey wherever podcasts can be found. Experience the fastest internet and more in a snap. With Xfinity XFi, you get the speed, coverage, control, and security you need for the ultimate in-home Wi-Fi experience. Xfinity, proud partner of the Philadelphia Eagles. Well, great stuff from Ben. You can follow him on Twitter just like I do, at BenFennel underscore NFL. And while you're at it, I'm at EaglesXOs. That's where I post all the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's and O's content that we produce here at Eagles Entertainment. You know I greatly appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on all forms of social media. That's one way to support the show. But the best way is to go on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen. Leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. And I want to give a shout-out today to someone who did just that. Young Gifted in Black left us a five-star review you saying longtime listener first time caller in the years of Jim Schwartz leading the defense we've heard a lot about guys often having bad eyes and needing to fix that I understand that Avante Maddox is relatively young so maybe it can be forgiven but with Jalen Mills it's year five and without knowing the play calls it appears that his eyes are bad on a lot of plays given the emphasis on having good eyes and having played and coached the position I wonder how can players consistently have such bad eyes and continue to have the same opportunities without it being fixed so to me I would say that look Jalen 
had a, a bad game a couple weeks ago against Cleveland. You know, and that would be one where I'd say, yeah, like his eyes were not always in the right place in that game. Uh, that was a game also where he did have to bounce outside the corner just due to injury. So he, you know, bounced back and forth between corner and safety in that game. That being said, I think overall. Jalen's eyes are one of the strengths of his game. And look, uh, you know, you go back even just this past week, um, you know, that touchdown uh, by, I believe it was Robert Tunyon uh, from Aaron Rodgers, he's passing that off to Alex Singleton. Singleton did not take the pass off, and then, you know, Tunyon works into the deep part of the field and ends up giving up a touchdown. I think ultimately when you look at Mills, Number one, you have to account for the fact that he's making that switch over from corner to safety. We've talked about, look, he's done that in the past in college, but still a little bit different in the NFL, right? The speed of the game, a little bit different. So he's still making that adjustment. I think overall, just watching Jalen every game this year, I mean, he, he's been solid at safety. I, I don't I have not really had an issue overall. It has not been perfect, but I don't think that he has been a weakness for this defense either. I think that he's done a solid job uh, filling in at the strong safety spot opposite Rodney McLeod. Uh, you know, there are a lot of other things that have got to get cleaned up uh, before I say, you know, point the finger at Jalen Mills. That being said, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. So we'll see ultimately uh, how that situation pans out. You mentioned Avante Maddox as well. Honestly, I thought that Avante had a couple of really nice plays on the ball this week that, uh, you know, where he was just short of making a big play. Uh, I think you look at two catches really by Devonte Adams. One uh, down in the red zone. Uh, you could see that Avante did a good job of kind of you know trying to get his hands through the catch point there. I thought he played that perfectly. Ended up being an incompletion. I know he didn't touch the ball, but he played that well. Then the other one was actually a backed-up situation. Uh, Green Bay, I believe, they were inside their own five-yard line. Play action. Aaron Rodgers hits Devontae Adams in the post. Avante Maddox did a great job. His eyes were almost perfect on that play. He made a great job coming from the backside and getting to the post. That was not really his area, but he did a great job of kind of overlapping and making a play deep down the field. He was just a step short of where he needed to be, or not where he needed to be, but of, of getting home to be able to make that play. So, you know, I look at Avante Maddox. His eyes, I think, for the most part, have been good. There have been times where the Eagles have certainly had issues. Avante has not been perfect this year uh, with his eyes either. He has not been perfectly assignment sound, but Overall, I think those are strengths of those guys' games, and their competitiveness certainly is something that the coaches really uh, like about the way that they play as well. So, uh, Young Gifted Black, great question. Thank you. Thank, really appreciate your support. Hope you uh, got the answer that you were looking for there uh, from me in that question. But uh, to wrap up the show, we'll go from the secondary to the trenches. Again, I caught up with Eagles defensive tackle Malik Jackson to talk about uh, the defensive line and really just his background playing the position. Let's get to that interview right now. Well, welcome into our exclusive one-on-one. Excited to welcome in Eagles defensive tackle Malik Jackson. Malik, thanks for joining me, man. Uh, Thank you for having me. All right, well, let's talk through the defensive line play. Uh, The first question I want to ask you is just this. I love talking with players and coaches about parts of playing specific positions that might seem important to you guys that maybe fans and media are not talking about enough. Is there one part of playing defensive line that you feel is more important than people make it seem? Uh, One part that's more important? Um, Yeah. I think people, I mean, I guess I want to say pass rush because to get to the pass, you have to play the run. You know what I'm right. saying? So it's like the run has to be equally as important. So I don't know. I think, uh, but it's hard to say because <laughs> pass rushers get paid the big dollars. You know what I'm saying? So it's hard to say that. Um, I say getting hands up. I think getting mm-hmm. hands up is uh, just as important to everything. So back those balls down. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, so just just kind of taking away passing lanes. And yeah. I feel like that's, you know, watching you for the last few years and watching you, even going back to Tennessee, I feel like that's something that you do a lot of, whether you're lined up outside or inside throughout the course of your career. Uh, when did you kind of learn to kind of pick that part of your game up? Um, well, it really just being um, 
good coaching, having good coaching, mm. you know, especially when I got to Denver with the coach Bill Kolar, he really emphasized getting hands up. And so that year when he was there with me, it really uh, just got me better with that. And I tried to take that with me the rest of my career. I feel like you're one of those guys that does a lot of the dirty work inside. And going back, even to, like I said, I've, I've been watching you since you were, uh, you know, making plays in the SEC with Tennessee. You come up into Denver, you go to Jacksonville, now here in Philadelphia. You do a lot of that dirty. What are some of those things that you feel, uh, again, kind of go unseen along the defensive line? I think it's the double teams. You know, people, yeah. people don't really see the double teams going on. You know, um, I think really setting edges. You know, you got these really big athletic guards coming at you. So being able to just stop their momentum and set an edge and, uh, you know, not make it have to bounce out to the end and uh, just cutting everything sharp. I think that's uh, – I think that's – those are two things that, you know, are really important. And one thing, you know, I feel like we, with you, when you came out in, uh, what was it, 2012, mm-hmm. it wasn't really talked about this. But, you know, if, if a guy with your skill set come into the league this year, people would be talking about, oh, this is a positionless player along the defensive line. You know, he could play D-tackle. He could play defensive end. When you fully made that change to D-tackle, what were some of the things that you kind of had to learn quickly and make that adjustment to playing more inside? Uh, I, I changed the three-tech when I left Southern Cal to go to Tennessee. And uh, the biggest thing was just everything happens a lot faster. You know, the steps mm-hmm. are shorter. The engagement's faster. It's right now. You know, um, the quarterback's right there. Um, instead of, you know, being at end, he's further. You have to take more steps to engage. So I think just just, just everything happening now and being in the phone, pretty much fighting in the phone booth was the biggest change for me. When when did you know growing up that you were going to be a defensive lineman? Like, I, when did you start playing football, and, and when did you first make that adjustment to the D line? Uh, I always knew I was going to the NFL. You couldn't tell me anything different. Um, but uh, in high school, I was a def- I was a defensive end, and then um, I got to college at Southern Cal, and then um, I think I played a little bit of end there, and then when I got to Tennessee, I played three tech. So yeah. When did you start playing football originally? I started when I was eight, the youngest you could. Yeah, I was yep. I was young out there doing my thing. My dad uh, was my coach, so you know how that goes. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was it was fun times though, man. I look, I sit at home and I think back a lot of those days. Just uh, definitely uh, the, those young years molded me. It was nice. Those are nice. Hey, what did you play? Uh, when, when did your dad put you in at first? Uh, he was a linebacker, and so okay. me and my brother were uh, middle linebackers, the forty below brothers. That's what he called <laughs> us. So. <laughs> what did Hold you uh, What did you make the move to D line then? Uh, we went moved to D line going to high school. We were going gotcha. to high school, and um, our high school had some pretty good linebackers, so they moved yep. us to defensive ends, and that's where that's when it started. Did you play other sports growing up? Uh, in high school, I, I ran track to get faster for football. Okay. Um, I saw the importance of uh, just turning the edge, and uh, you know, being a, a leaner guy. You know, I really want to emphasize the speed. So, uh, yeah, that really helped me. What what events did you run, and what were you what were you weighing these days when you're uh, when you're running track? <laughs> Shoot, I was I was my reference of weight is so off, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so like I, I, I would say I think I was about like one twenty forty something okay. like that. Yeah, I was wow. I was right. I was small, um, er smaller. Uh, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I ran the I ran the two hundred. I ran the one hundred once. Oh no, I ran a four hundred uh, relay Jeez. once, and I was the anchor killed that. Okay. Uh, ran the 100 a few times. But I was really, what I really did was uh, the um, hurdles, 200 hurdles. Mm. So, yeah. 
I've heard a lot of coaches will talk about hurdles and just you know that they like guys that have that background because that's a tough event to go through. I mean, you're dealing with that. You're having to work at high speed and work the hurdles, and not to mention doing that when you're rocking 400 uh, 400 meter relay, 200 meter relay. Those are sustaining kind of events. Does that kind of are you? Are there some takeaways that you take from uh, your days running track and transitioning to playing full time along the defensive line? Definitely, I think the hurdles. You know, you can sit there and, yeah. and you have to. You know, you're running, thinking. You know, adjusting. You know, uh, trying to get everything set as you come up to that hurdle. So I think a lot of, especially a lot. I think I can say a lot of things. Um, now that you're asking me about it, I think a lot of, a lot of things came from that. Just being able just to think on the fly. You know, adjust and and um, you know, be aware of your surroundings, but also understand yourself. So, yeah. I like it. So then just transitioning real quickly to the NFL, who were some of the guys that took you under your wing or under their wing early on and kind of helped you get acclimated to the NFL? Uh, when I got to Denver, it was Robert Ayers. He was the, you know, because they came from Tennessee. So he Another really, Tennessee guy. Yeah, yeah that's right. so he really helped me. And a guy named uh, uh, Vic, Kevin Vickerson. Uh, they, those yep. two really, um, really just, you know, attached to me. And, and then my, you know, all you, all you hear is about guys when you come to NFLs, you know, they're going to tell you the wrong thing. They're going to try to make you look bad so they can stay in. You know, that wasn't them at all. They really took me under their wing and really helped me and uh, made it easy for me. So it was it was nice. It was that something that you took with you, you know, throughout the course of your career and are other guys that you feel uh, you've tried to reach out to, young guys that have come into the league? Oh, definitely. I, I, I think, you know, I look at myself as an older brother kind of filled with these guys, you know, just try to let them know what's going on, what to look for, you know, when to relax or, or bump it up, you know. But I also have some guys that didn't treat me so well, so I take a little bit of that mm-hmm. with me too, you know. We, we have to ask for jokes every day and, you know, get snacks and it's zero tolerance. So, sure. you know, it's, it's a little bit of everything. Last question for you is just you know playing on a defensive line like this one where you've guys got uh, you know too deep across the board and even guys that are on the practice squad that can play in the NFL and have proven that. How fun is that for you guys as a group? How how fun is it to have that competition? Uh, it's it's really fun. You know, at, at first you know when everybody's trying to fight for position, you know, and and coach you know hasn't set the depth chart, you know, it's a little nerve wracking. But once everything gets set. And, you know, people kind of adjust their, you know, filling their positions. I think, uh, you know, we understand the competition and, and Coach does a good job of giving everybody equal playing time to go out there and do your thing. So, uh, you know, it's – it's um, I, I like to look at things as being, like, comfortably uncomfortable. You know, everybody's comfortably sure. uncomfortable, you know, and, and I think that's how it should be, so – well, Malik, for years and years, you've been one of my favorite players to watch on film, whether you've been here in Philly or elsewhere. Really appreciate you joining us here on our one-on-one interview. Hey, thank you for your platform. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Malik Jackson and all of you out there for your continued support of this show and all the rest of our podcast offerings here at Eagles Entertainment. All that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade. For everybody here at the NovaCare Complex, I am Fran Duffy. We'll talk to you next week. Raise a glass to that comforting feeling of an Eagles touchdown with the all-new Broad and Patterson Wine Collection created in partnership with Wink. Featuring a Cabernet, a Rosé, and a Chardonnay, Broad and Patterson wines are the perfect pairing for any occasion. Now you can bring the sweet taste of victory with you to a dinner with friends or to the tailgate with your game day crew. Purchase online today at philadelphiaeagles.com wine to stock up and have Broad and Patterson delivered right to your door. A portion of proceeds from every bottle benefit Eagles Autism Foundation.